This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls, and I'm joined by James Sipe and Kate Andrews, our economics editor. And it is the day of the spring statement. We just heard from Rishi Sunak, and despite calls from various Tory MPs and some anonymous cabinet ministers, he is stuck with his national insurance hike. Um, but he did do some things to caveat and soften the cost of living crisis, including on NI. And he also announced an income tax, but you'll have to wait for it probably until 2024. Kate, before we start to go over the analysis, can you give us some of the headline announcements and policies we heard today? Gosh, where to begin? As you said, Katie, uh, he is going forward with the national insurance levy. And his point was, if you want the spending, then you have to fund it. And this is his personal ambition, actually, to to connect in people's minds that when you call for more money for the NHS, which has been going, what happens every single year, then you're going to have to fund that in some way. And if it's long-term spending, you're not going to be borrowing it. It's tax increases. However, he has lifted the threshold at which point you would start to pay NIC by nearly £3,000. So that is a, a significant sum. I think it's going to be over £300 per worker that you're going to get back because of that NIC tax lift. In terms of temporary cost of living squeeze Issues. He's also taken 5p off of fuel duty, which is thought to be worth about 2.5 billion pounds in terms of a tax cut. So he has, you know, looked at the current situation in terms of fuel prices, in terms of tax, and he has acknowledged that, especially for low paid workers, these are things that they really can't afford. And the tax cuts that he's announced, I think, are, are, are targeted towards those lower paid workers, which is good. That's exactly what they should be. The really big rabbit out of the hat, which you don't get right away, is he has promised that by 2024, so within this parliament, income tax is going to fall for the first time in 16 years. The basic rate of 20p is going to drop to 19p, which I think is worth about £6 billion tax cut. And uh, again, quite significant for a chancellor who's been promising to cut taxes for a Tory party that's been promising to cut taxes and for the UK which actually I think has only had two income tax cuts in the past 20 years the chancellor said something around there so it was a tax cutting mini budget I think from many different perspectives but we can get into this in the analysis Katie one might ask to what extent the overall tax burden has really been cut based on some spectator analysis right off the bat it looks like it may actually be going up James, what struck out to you? So I think the raising of the national insurance threshold essentially means that for more than two thirds of workers, they'll be paying less national insurance even after the health and social care levy comes in. So I think as Kate says, what he's essentially trying to do is say, look, we still need this revenue stream for the NHS, but I get the cost of living crisis that's going on and that now is not the time to be increasing the tax burden on people on low and middle incomes. So I'm basically going to exempt them from this by raising the threshold. I think on the income tax cut, I think he's armed himself with a weapon against people who want lots of extra spending. Because what he is essentially saying to the Tory party is almost the marshmallow test, you know, that, you know, look, if everyone is restrained in terms of the extra public spending they want, we will be able to cut income tax right before the next election. I think the one lesson you can take from this is their central assumption is that they are going for an election in 2024, 
probably May time, June time, because you're going to cut income tax in April and then go straight into the campaign. Plan your holidays now. Caveat, special advisors were told at a recent meeting by David Kenzie you need to be ready for an election from autumn 2023. So plan your holidays, but perhaps make sure there is a cancellation option should things change. And so I think what you see going on here as well is some other chancellors might have chosen at this point to say, look, inflation is much higher than when the spending settlements for departments were announced in the autumn. So I'm going to compensate departments for that. That would have cost about £18 billion across the cost of the parliament. He's instead chosen to essentially not do that and instead cut taxes instead. And I think that that is a sign that he has used this moment to redress some of the balance towards a more fiscally conservative position. I think people will say he's left himself lots of headroom. Why hasn't he spent all the headroom in either tax cuts or extra spending? I I think there are two simple reasons for that. One, uh, I think the view in Whitehall is that the forecasts are likely to be overly optimistic. The OBR itself says it hasn't had a chance to fully consider the economic consequences of the Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the resulting sanctions regime. And I think one of the other reasons people think this is too optimistic is there is a growing sense in Whitehall that we might be heading for a prolonged conflict with these sanctions remaining in place on Russia for years. The second is something actually that that goes back to something he said to you in in an interview, Katie, for the Christmas edition of A Spectator two years ago, which is, you know, then he has been warning for a long time about what might happen to, to the cost of servicing the UK's debt if interest rates and inflation rose. And as he pointed out in his speech, you know, the debt servicing costs this year are four times what they were last year. And I think his worry, he wants to leave some himself some headroom in case those costs grow again. And I mean, there are reasons to think they might well do, given that both inflation and interest rates look like they are going to carry on rising in the short term, at least. Kate, one of the charges against Rishi Sunak since he got up to speak is um, this sense that actually through focusing on tax cuts, we are going to be heading back to austerity. What do you say to that? Well, I think as James lays out, he has made a choice. There's a trade-off here. Inflation means that the cost of living is becoming much more difficult. It all, And, you know, when we feel these squeezes, we feel them on individuals. We can also feel them on government departments. So he had a choice. He had his fiscal headroom and he thought, am I going to make life easier for taxpayers or am I going to make life easier for government officials who aren't going to have to want to squeeze their own budgets and figure out where they can make cost savings? And he decided to fall down on the side of the taxpayer, not the government officials. There will be people who criticize him for that, but also to James's point about these borrowing figures. And look, this isn't sexy stuff, but I think it's really important and perhaps one of the most important graphs to come out of the spring statement is that what we are paying now just to service the debt, just the interest payments on what we've already borrowed, is going to be approaching £100 billion a year. At the moment, they're estimating about £83 billion a year. Inflation still going up interest rates still going up. Who knows what we'll end up at? That is more than we spend on defense overall in this country. These are huge payments and you don't get anything for it. You don't get more nurses. You don't get more doctors. You don't get more teachers. You don't get anything for it. Anybody who's sitting here saying, oh gosh, no, what we really need to do is spend more. We need to give more to government departments. Why don't we borrow what we need to invest? All of these phrases that sound really nice. People need to explain now where that money is coming from because borrowing flippantly is just so clearly not an option. It's costing us an incredible sum of money. 
And that's politically difficult, but it puts the nation in, in a really vulnerable state, I think. So in order to argue that, you know, Rishi should just keep spending all this money, we should fund more government departments, and we should give tax cuts, you have to say where that cash is coming from. If you can't, you then have to say, okay, would I prefer that we have higher government spending, or would I prefer we have tax cuts? And I think even the Labour Party would really struggle to say, oh, we shouldn't have had these tax cuts, especially with the cost of living as, as squeezed as it is. Kate, just on that, I mean, Labour effectively suggesting that there should be more in the way of public spending um, when it comes to easing cost of living. The OBR um, has estimated that living standards are going to have the worst fall since the 1950s. So do you think that Rishi Sunak is going to come under pressure to do more? One of the things on energy bills, for example, is, uh, which you've written about in your Telegraph business column, is the sense that those in the Treasury felt that they didn't need to announce everything now because actually the next time the energy price cap goes up is October. So do you think this is a moving picture as opposed to the, the end of the cost of living policies? Oh, definitely. And I think that um, I'd be really surprised if in October we didn't hear about more subsidies, especially for those on lower pay, potentially to help tackle energy costs. But as you say, Katie whether or not bills might go up again in October by £500 or £2,000 would dramatically change what the Treasury decides to do and how much it would cost them. So it's actually very difficult to make those decisions right now. On that disposable income point, it, like th- this is going to be a really painful year going forward. And I don't think that Rishi Sunak has been dishonest about that. He's actually made it very clear that he wants to help people in the lowest incomes, but he is not going to be able to relieve every financial burden that falls on our shoulders now. There are very serious economic consequences for shutting down the world economy for two years. And also, you know, I think it's right and moral that we've done this before the economic sanctions that we've decided to put against Russia. Uh, this is how we're going to stand in solidarity with Ukraine. There are going to be pains and costs attached to that. So he's going to try to lighten where he can, but he's not going to try to cover the whole thing. And this is a really big mindset shift, even for the Tory party, which got really used to the past two years. There's the Chancellor basically saying he could cover everything. Now, James Forsyth had to leave the room to take a, f- a phone call, we presume it's very important. And I have to say that in that time, Fraser Nelson came in and took his chair. I may have suggested he should take his chair, but now James has walked back in. But while we have you next... competition at the spectator. While we have you... My my office, can I say? Yeah, I I support the chair, mate. I'm keeping my mic. So while we have you here, Fraser, what's your uh, initial thoughts on Rishi's spring statement? Two things. One is that it's not as generous as it makes out. You can listen to it and think it was one big sort of um, tax-cutting bonanza. If you actually look at the small print, then the fiscal drag, in other words, um, how many people are going to be taken into the top tax bracket because their wages are going to go up via inflation. And the government ought to really adjust these tax brackets with inflation where it doesn't, it ensnares more people in, um, in taxes. So that's called fiscal drag. It's a stealth tax cut. Uh, until recently, it was never actually scored. So you could you have a look at a budget which purports to give away lots of money in tax cuts. But you wouldn't, it wouldn't actually be admitting in how much extra money it's going to get because it's not really increasing the tax thresholds along with inflation. Now, as far as I can work out, if you look at everything this um, government's done since 2019, then the fiscal drag, in other words, the tax rises, will outweigh the tax cuts announced um, today. Office of Budget Responsibility is quite clear about this. It says that Rishi Sunak's tax cuts amounts to about a quarter of his tax increases, and that for the um, Tory government in general since 2019 is about one-sixth. 
So let's put that into perspective. Income tax going down by 1p in the pound, that's welcome and is dramatic, but it is in the context of other taxes going up. And according to the OBR, for every 1p of tax cuts, there is um, 4p of tax rises over the Sunak period. So put that into perspective. That said, any tax cut is welcome, and the tough decision he's taken, and I think people are only beginning to cotton on to this, is not to increase the government's spending with inflation. That will lead to some pretty tight spending decisions. Robert Peston, in a blog for um, The Spectator, has already described it as austerity and has accused Rishi Sunak of going against everything that Boris Johnson believes. In other words, it won't be long until people are saying to Rishi Sunak that austerity is back, that he's brought it back. Now, this, of course, is true. In James's political column for the magazine, he points out that the £18 billion that Sunak has saved by not increasing government spending in line with inflation has been used to, to, to in the service of tax cuts. This is, as Rishi Sunak promised. But the, the tougher problems come, for example, if you don't uprate benefits by inflation, you end up with real terms cuts to, to benefits, to universal credit, and other such things. So this is tougher to disentangle. I mean, I'm talking to you, Katie, now it's half past four. I've been with the guys in the research departments, and we're trying to balance these things out because it's tricky. Fiscal drag is, some, is a stealth tax which doesn't appear in the books. We're trying to measure it up. I say, or rather the magazine says in its leader article in the new issue, but this is a turning point and an important one, that Rishi Sunak has started to slammy a slice of the size of the government. It's not a big tax cut, but the fact that it is a tax cut at all demonstrates a very important change in direction. So I think, as Kate has argued earlier, this is kind of historic for Rishi Sunak. He has changed direction. He has moved from the direction he was going, which is ever higher taxes, ever higher spending, and he's beginning to backtrack, not by the full distance, but certainly coming in the right direction. So let's see, once the pressure starts, and start it will, if he stays the course. James, on that point about Rishi Sunak and austerity and Boris Johnson and referring to that Robert Peston blog which is on our website for everyone to read. When we interviewed the Prime Minister in the 2019 election campaign he made some quite strident comments on austerity and tried to distance himself from austerity under the Osborne Cameron era. So are we heading to a clash here? I think there is an interesting question here like, which has always been slightly ambiguous about Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson does like spending money on big infrastructure projects, big capital things. You know, you remember the idea that now, 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 now done in the idea of a bridge to Northern Ireland, for example. You know, he does like these big infrastructure projects. That, that's the kind of things he really likes spending money on. Departmental budgets, so kind of day-to-day spending is a slightly different question. And there, Boris Johnson has always been kind of one of those people who's kind of thought that you, know, you could, you know, you know efficiency saving, you, know, you, know, you could make the public sector work better and that would save lots of money. Now, the question of that is, is detail and how are you going to do that? And I think the Treasury view right now, interestingly backed up by Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is kind of, you know, the new, essentially Boris Johnson has made a kind of Minister for Government Efficiency, is look, look these spending settlements agreed in October were in historical terms generous. So therefore you can, departments can use that money and in the same way that households are having to adjust their spending because of inflation, departments can do that and find efficiencies and that the departments themselves know the best way to manage to get more for, you know, more for the same amount of money essentially. And so I think, I don't think the conflagration that has been suggested is 
as obvious as that. I think one clear area of tension, though, not necessarily between the numbers 10 and 11, but one of the big political arguments is going to be about public sector pay. Because any department um, sec faced with this will think, right, one of the ways we're going to do this with the Department of Education is, you know, we won't go for a big above inflation increase for teachers, you know, or, you know, the pay increase might actually not in real terms, being increased at all, and that that is going to become a political issue. I think you will see the you will see the government butting up against uh, public sector unions over the issue of public sector pay. Because if you really want to control public spending, and you're trying to have departments manage to do the same amount in a high inflation environment with the same budget they were given in a relatively low inflation environment, public sector pay is one of the obvious tension points. And as Fraser and Kate continue to work their way through the documents, we will bring you more updates um, tomorrow on the fallout from Rishi's spring statement. But for now, thank you to James, Fraser and Kate, and thank you for listening. (laughs) 